We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure that all of us are very, very familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. First, I want us to look at two passages. Um, I'm going to read them. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to try to read them very quickly so that we can get into 1 Corinthians 13. The topic this morning is this topic of Christian love. What is it? Why is it important? What weight does it hold? How significant is it really? And so I want us to look first at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. What a very simple thought, right? But it puts it in perspective already. If love is of God, if we have been loved by God, if we have experienced the love of God, then how simple of a thought is it that of course, we ought to love one another. Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Again, what a very simple thought, but that cuts to the quick. He who does not love does not know God. Those are strong words. It's a very simple verse, very straightforward verse. Contemplate that. If we have not love for the brethren, and of course if we have not love for God, then we do not know Him. We are separated from Him. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Consider the importance, the significance, and the weight that is given to Christian love or brotherly love. John 13. John 13, starting in verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How are we to love one another? As Christ loves by this also, or sorry, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's profound. Jesus tells his disciple, one of the ways that people will know that you actually belong to me, that you are my disciples, is your love for one another. One of the sure marks of a true Christian one of the sure marks of someone who has come to taste and see that the Lord is good is that they love the brethren. Is that they love others. But specifically, there is a Christ-like love that we are to share with the brethren, with the saints, with the ones who also would say, I have come to experience the love of Christ in salvation. You have come to to, to taste the love of Christ and to know the love of Christ in salvation. And now we share that love of Christ with one another. And so with these thoughts in mind, we come to 1 Corinthians 13, which so often, how many of you have ever been to a wedding and 1 Corinthians 13 was used 
in the wedding ceremony. How many of you, you've been to at least one wedding where 1 Corinthians 13, okay, this is not a passage about marriage. It is a passage about love. Okay. I'm, however, it's not, it's not a passage that suggests be, oh, well, this is a passage about love, so we're going to use it for marriage because marriage and love, those two, those two things really go together. No. Paul here, in chapter 12, Paul has been stating explicitly and plainly, clearly, you are all of the believers at Corinth, you are all of one body. You're one. You are together. You have been baptized into Christ. You have come to taste of the same spirit. You are one. You have come together and you are supposed to operate as the body of Christ. You are supposed to operate as one. Then he comes to this object of love. So the love that we're discussing in 1 Corinthians 13 is not husband and wife. It's Christian to Christian. So don't, don't fall into that trap of thinking, oh, 1 Corinthians 13, that's, that's about marriage because a lot of people... You, no. This is about when we, when we come to church for worship. But so much more than that. When we're living our everyday lives, our daily lives... And we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are out here in Baxley. That are in the neighboring counties. That are in the state of Georgia. That are across the United States. That are all over the globe. We should have a Christ-like love for those who are brethren. This is the love that we're talking about. The love that we are meant to have one towards another. I think one of the greatest shortcomings and one of the greatest faults or follies of the modern church is that we do not love one another. Think about it. If we loved one another, there would be not there would not be so much division and discord among the brethren. Right here in Baxley, right here in Appling County, there's over a hundred churches. Biblically speaking, there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for there to be that much division and that much discord between the brethren. We don't love one another. How many of you in your lifetime, you have either been a part of, or at the very least, you have heard of a church split that took place here? I'm not talking about out there. Here in Baxley, you've either been a part of, or you have heard of, a church split. Let's just be honest. Okay. We don't love one another. We don't. Now, and hear what I'm saying, because I don't want anybody to sit there and say, well, he... He seems like he's a I said, we, we, we're the body of Christ. We're in this together. We don't love people like we ought to. And again, I'll be more specific. We don't love other professing Christians as we ought to. The very last verse, the last, yeah, the last verse of first Corinthians 12, but earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now the church at Corinth, they had this, they had almost an insatiable desire, it seemed, to have like specific gifts. They were really infatuated with tongues, the gift of prophecy and healings and everything else. And, but, and Paul says, look, we're not getting into all that this morning. Some of y'all's eyes just got real big. Like, are we going to talk? No, I'm not, I'm not here to break down the spiritual gifts. 
But Paul says, look, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. You're, you're so caught up in all of this stuff that, that I, I want to speak in tongues. I want to do this. I want to have the gift of prophecy. I want to have the gift of healing. Paul says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And he points them to love. Love. We have, even still today, even in, even in a small town, we have many Christians and many churches that they want the latest, most exciting, most immediately gratifying thing, right? Or we want to see a move of God. You hear a lot of people say that. So we want to see a move of God. And if you were to ask, well, what does that mean? What do you mean you want to see a move of God? Say, well, I want to see full altars. I want to see revival. I want to see, I want to see the church houses packed out with people. And I want to see, and really what we're saying, we want, to, we want some excitement, Right? We want stuff that we can see. We want stuff that we can touch and we can feel and we can measure it with human measurements to say, oh, there's, there's something going on here. You know, there, there's some stuff happening here. You see it everywhere. Do you want to grow your church? Yeah, sign me up. I want more people to start coming to church. We want something exciting. We want something fun. Hey, do you want to make your music program better? Yeah, we want better music. To get, you know, maybe music will help people come to church. Hey, do you want to see revival? Yeah, we want full altars. We want, you know, we want powerful preaching where that preacher's pounding the pulpit and screaming and sweating and people are pouring, pouring down the aisles. We, do we just want to see a move of God? We want stuff that's just, it feels exciting. It stirs the emotions. Paul says, listen, here's what you need to be focused on. Love. Do you love the brethren? Do you love one another? That's what you need to be focused on. Listen closely to what he says. What if we had all of that exciting stuff, right? What if we, what if we saw what we would call, that's important, what we would call, that's a mighty move of God. But we still didn't have love for one another. Listen to what Paul says here. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In short, he's useless. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Folks, that's big. If I've got all the answers, I've got all mysteries, and I know I have all knowledge and I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Nothing. Folks, it's not the Christian goal to be nothing. Furthermore, I would say that in saying that I am nothing, Paul is saying, you can have all of this stuff. You can have all of the outward appearance. Oh, they're, they're so faithful. Oh, they're such a mighty person. Oh, they could remove mountains with their faith and everything. Paul says, you're still nothing. Even if it were me, I'm nothing. Are you even a part of the body of Christ at all if you don't have love? Who cares about these gifts that you think you have? If you have not love, you're nothing. But then his last example is the one that is so weighty and profound to me personally. Though I bestow all of my goods, so I give all my stuff away. 
Even if I were to give all of my stuff away to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned. But have not love. It profits me nothing or I gain nothing. Oh, look at that person. They give away all of their goods. They're so they're so kind and helpful to the poor. But it's that very last one that gets me. Even if I were to die a martyr's death. If I were to say, kill me. I'll deliver myself up to be burned. Right? You think somebody, you think of somebody in that in that vein, you think, well, if they died as a Christian, surely, surely, they have a great reward awaiting them. No. Even if I were to die a martyr's death and have not love, I gain nothing, I have profited nothing. Well, what is what is the great hope of the Christian faith? That to die is gain, right? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. That when we die, eternal life, eternal glory is what awaits us. So if Paul is saying, I could die a martyr's death, but if I don't have love, I haven't gained anything. To die is gain. If I don't have love, I haven't gained anything. That's pretty significant. That's pretty weighty. You can do all of the externals. You can even give all of your goods away and feed the poor. And you can deliver up your body to be burned. But if you do not have love, that exposes something. You're not of the faith. You're not of the faith. Those who have been saved, those who have truly come to know Christ, love the brethren. If we do not have love, we are nothing and we gain nothing. Simply put, does that sound like the Christian faith? No, the Christian faith is not you are nothing and you gain nothing. The Christian faith is you are born again. You are chosen by God. You are called by God. You are his possession. You are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you will gain an eternal inheritance. You gain life. You gain glory. So for Paul to say, if I don't have love, I am nothing and I gain nothing. Folks, an absence of love exposes something very very important. If we do not have love one towards another, then there is very good reason to doubt that we are of the faith at all. Say, okay, Caleb, you've stated your case. You've stated Paul's case. What does this love that you're speaking of, what does it look like? Well, right out of the gate, let me just say this, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Biblical love Looks little to nothing like what the world calls love. We, we must start there. What did Jesus say about your enemies? Love them. Pray for them. What does the world say about your enemies? Just cut them out of your life. They were holding you back anyway. Cut them out of your life. You never have to worry about them again. Right? So right out of it, and I'm, I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to camp out on that point too much because that really is a whole other sermon or a whole other discussion for another time. But just consider that. We've got to start there. Biblical love is that love which says, 
I have come to believe and to know that while I was his enemy, Christ died for me and God has saved me. God has ransomed me. God has redeemed me for his own possession. I am a child of God. The, the love that I have come to experience is an eternal love. It is a heavenly love. It is a, um, it is a miraculous love that this world does not know. So if it is a love that is of God, it automatically distinguishes, distinguishes itself up against a love that is of this world. The type of love that the world goes after is, is a type of love that we're still, we're still seeking ourself. We're still seeking what we want. We're still seeking what makes us feel good, what makes us feel fulfilled, what makes us feel, what makes us feel loved. Godly love, Christ-like love, is a love that truly considers others higher than we esteem ourselves. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that even as our enemies are harming us and even as our enemies are doing us wrong, in the case of Christ, even as our enemies are nailing us to a cross, He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. But here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul illustrates and gives us characteristics of this love right here in this chapter. So if the people at the church of, of Corinth were saying, okay, Paul, you've made your point. We're supposed to be operating as one. We're supposed to be operating as the body of Christ fitly joined together. Every member playing his part, playing his role, exercising his spiritual gifts for the glory of God. We're supposed to be operating as one, the united body of Christ. And you, you, you have told us that even if we have all these gifts, but we don't have love, we're nothing. So Paul, please explain to us what this love looks like. So Paul says this, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Things. Consider for a moment a love that suffers long, is kind and does not envy. It doesn't puff itself up. It, it doesn't parade itself. It's not rude. It doesn't seek its own gain. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. That thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil. Another, another way to translate those words is keeps no record of wrongdoing. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears, and this is, this is it, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If the body of Christ possessed and exercised that love with one another, there would be no split or division, right? Because whatever the wrongdoing that was done, forgiveness would be pursued. Reconciliation would be pursued. We would seek to make it right. Oh, but love doesn't insist on its own way. Love doesn't uh, seek its own. So 
We wouldn't say, well, I just want things to be done my way or I want things to be done in the way that pleases me. No, we would say we want what is best but in the eyes of God. We want what pleases God. We want to please Him. We want to glorify Him. So whenever there was a dispute or whenever there was an, an argument or, a, you know, let's say that a church was on the verge of a split. True love says, hey, there's no cause, there's no reason for division within the body of Christ. If we're all seeking to serve Him and to honor Him, then we cannot let this, whatever it is, separate us, divide us, provoke us and, and, and turn us away. We need to get to the bottom of this. We need to seek forgiveness. We need to suffer long. We need to endure through all things. We need to keep no record of wrongs. We need to not hold stuff over everybody's head and say, well, we know, we know, you know, and we're, you know, we know God forgives you, but we don't know. Here's the thing. Hebrews, believe it's chapter nine. Don't quit. It's either chapter eight or chapter nine. When we are forgiven in a salvific sense, when we are forgiven, we have the promise of God that he will remember our lawless deeds and remember our sins no more. I'm going to make sure everybody's awake this morning. When it says that he will remember them no more, what does no more mean? When is God ever going to bring our sins back up? Never again. Praise God. Now, Eddie and Sharon aren't here this morning. Eddie and Sharon are proof positive that you can hear many, many, many of my long-winded sermons and still be alive today. All right? But they're not here this morning. But I know they're still alive. Okay? And these two over here are proof positive. And my wife is proof positive. You can hear a lot of my sermons and you can still live through them. Okay? They might be painful at times because they're really long. But you can live through them. I promise. Okay? But Eddie, I brought up Eddie because me and him have talked about it before. And something that comes up a lot. Of, and I think that probably many of you would agree with it. I'm only 31. I've seen it happen. Some of y'all are, we'll just say, older than 31. And I'm sure you've seen it happen too. Eddie has a, a phrase that he says sometimes. He'll say, Christians are really good at kicking other Christians while they're down. Like we're really good at beating up our own. Right? Okay, some of you are already. Okay. Christ-like love is that type of love that keeps no record of wrongs. We have a brother that falls. We may be tempted to say, why would you do that? You knew that was wrong. That was such a foolish thing that you did. But if that brother or sister is broken over what happened, what are we called to do with them? To forgive him. If God doesn't keep a record of their wrong, how dare we keep a record of their wrong? If God has forgiven them, how dare we not forgive them? Right? Okay? And it endures all things. So, so here's the next thing, right? Because you might be thinking, well, what about people that they just... We just constantly have a hard time, you know, it's just, and it just seems like uh, we're always going through a trial or always going through a tribulation. It just, things never seem to get better or whatever. Love endures all things. Love endures. It presses on. It continues. There never comes a time where we say, well, I've given up on that one. What? 
Love endures. Love continues on. It, it presses on. But let's, let's look at some of these other ones. We'll go through them one more time. Love suffers long. Okay? It is kind. It does not envy. Actually, as we're going through these, let us consider this. What is the root cause? You don't have to answer this out loud, but let us consider this. What would you say is the root cause of the majority of church splits? Don't answer that out loud. Just ponder that. What is at the root of many, the majority of church splits or church division? Love suffers long as kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, whatever you are thinking in your head about what causes most church splits and everything else, I can guarantee you because it's scriptural. I'm not giving you my opinion on this. Whatever causes the church splits or anything else other than... Let's just say a church has a pastor who starts preaching false doctrine and starts preaching things that are really unbiblical and the church says, we've got to go another direction. We can't allow him to keep preaching that. And so the church and that pastor split ways. Or people in the congregation start going off into left field and and believing things and following things that aren't biblical. Yeah, when it comes to issues of sound doctrine and issues of the faith, yeah, the true believers need to separate themselves from false professors of faith. But what is typically at the root of many church splits? It's hardly ever doctrinal. It's always personal. So whatever you're thinking, in your mind, whatever examples you're coming up with, I guarantee you that that church split or many church splits could have been kept from happening could have gotten resolved and those church families could have reconciled if there would have been genuine Christ-like love. That said, you know what? This isn't about me. This is about God's glory. Are we glorifying God right now? You know what? This isn't about what I want. This isn't even about what what we want. If it's a group of people, this is, this is not even about what we want. Being a part of the body of Christ is about what God desires, what He has said. Being a part of the body of of Christ is to say, we only want that which pleases Him. And if this is not pleasing Him, we need to get to the bottom of it. We need to resolve this. It rejoices in the truth. If you agree with me, even if you even if you disagree with me, you still have to listen to me finish out the sermon. So that's fine. But if you agree with me that one of the biggest issues within the church is that we do not love one another with a Christ-like love. We do not genuinely love one another as Scripture says we are to love one another. I'm going to go a step further and say, I think that the reason that we do not love one another, the way we, are, we ought to love one another... Is because we don't know the truth. And that opens up a little bit of a can of worms. Because if you're a critical thinker. You might already be asking yourself questions. Well if Caleb says we don't know the truth. Then what does he think these preachers have been doing for all these years? 
And if Caleb doesn't think we know the, the truth, that, that the modern church doesn't know the truth, then, then what were my parents teaching me when I was growing up? And if Caleb says that we don't really know the truth, then, then what have all these churches been doing for all of these years? This morning, I'm just going to answer the question, that question by simply saying this. They haven't been teaching the truth. Sometimes it's tradition. Sometimes we just pass down whatever tradition we were taught growing up. Sometimes it, it really is just the denomination. A denomination will pass down. Well, here's what the denomination says. Well, here's what the denomination says. Well, listen, that's only as good as it is biblical. If the denomination believes something biblical, then wonderful. Pass that down. But if a denomination holds to something that's not biblical and we're just teaching, well, here's what our denomination says. Here's what our denomination says. You're not teaching them the truth. You're teaching them the denomination. There's a danger there. Sometimes what gets passed down to others is simply what mom and daddy believe. Now that family goes to church and everything else, but at home and in, in the practical everyday life, what's really getting taught is here's what mom and daddy believe, so here's what you're going to believe too. Well, sometimes mom and daddy don't believe the truth. So we grow up in that, and I know it's difficult. We grow up in that, and then there, come, there comes a day where maybe we're just sitting at home reading the Bible. We're just studying the Word of God, spending our time with Him, having our time of prayer and meditation. And we come across something and all of a sudden it's like, whoa. Now wait a minute. I'm reading this passage and I'm pretty positive it means A. But when I was growing up, when I went to church, I was always told that it meant B. So, so what do I do? You always side with the truth. You always side with what God has actually spoken. And those are some of the most painful, heartbreaking moments that we would ever have to go through. To realize that, okay, well I had, you know, I had a preacher that I really, really liked that I think he may have been wrong on this issue. Or worse yet. My mom and daddy always told me growing up that, that these verses mean this, but now that I'm looking at it within the scripture and I'm looking at it within context, I think, I think my mom and daddy might have been wrong. But love rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. What pleases God? And there comes a time where we do have to ask ourselves the hard question. Okay, am I trying to please God or am I just trying to please people? Do I believe what I believe? Do I have the convictions that I have? Because I believe that these are this is what God has spoken in His Word and I believe that these are the things that please Him. Or do I have certain convictions because I'm trying to please other people? And I'm not rejoicing in the truth. I'm rejoicing in... My reputation or rejoicing in what other people think of me. Love rejoices in the truth. And so to bring this back to a, a very practical place. If we are a part of the body of Christ. If we are a part of a local body of believers. And there is something going on within the body of believers. That is not the truth. Which means that it does not glorify God. It is not keeping in step with the truth. Then it needs to be addressed. Because all of this love that we've been talking about here among the brethren, 
Listen, it all starts with the fact that we actually have to have a love for Christ and a love for the truth. And that only happens through the new birth. If somebody has not been born again, they don't have a genuine love for Christ. And they will not have a genuine love for truth. You see, earlier I mentioned it before, but earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, again, Paul says um, in verse 20 of, of chapter 12, he says, Now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Okay? Let's go back to verse 12, though. There's one body, but back it up even further to verse 12. As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into the body, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And all have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So in order to actually be baptized into one body, to come into the body of Christ... You've got to be born again. There has to be a genuine love for God. Listen, if we start to really try to love one another, but we still don't actually love God and love the truth, we're still on, we're still on bad footing. What good is it to just walk around saying that you love everybody and you love other people, but you still don't actually love God and love the truth? You can go back to what Paul said earlier, I'm nothing and I gain nothing. The only way that we're going to share true, genuine, biblical love with one another is if we ourselves have come to taste and to possess true, genuine, biblical, godly love. And only after we have experienced that and we now possess that love, we, we have come to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Only then can we actually live out all of these qualities that Paul's talking about here and share this love with one another. Verse 8 says, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Most of those, those are the things that the church at Corinth were just infatuated with. Those were the gifts that they were pursuing. And Paul says this, look. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge... Here's what those gifts are exercised for in the church, right? We don't know everything fully. We don't fully comprehend the mysteries of God. We don't fully comprehend the knowledge of God, right? And in, in, the, in the case of the modern church, when the gospel was just going out into all of the world, you've got this miracle of, of the gift of tongues where people actually heard in their own language. Right. And, and so the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the gospel is going out into the world and they're still learning. So gifts of prophecy, gifts of knowledge, gifts of tongue, tongues, people are people are being taught. People are growing up into the faith. But there's going to come a time where we actually are going to know completely. We're going to know fully. So there won't be a gift. There won't be a reason for continuing with the prophecy and the tongues and the knowledge. Because we're going to have come to a place of perfect knowledge. Where we know even as we are known. So that's important. Paul's saying, listen, you're caught up in all these things. But there's going to come a time. When that which is perfect has come. Then that which is in part will be done away with. So listen, there's coming a time where prophecies will cease. Tongues will cease. 
gift of knowledge will cease because we're all going to be on the same level. We're all going to know what everybody else knows. We're all going to understand what everybody else understands. We're, we're all going to get it. We're all going to know even as we are known. As God knows us, we will come to know Him. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And that is something that we should desire. That is something we should be pursuing. That is something we should be eager to possess. Say, I cannot wait for the day where I will be with Him in glory and I will know even as I am known. But Paul says, keep it in mind that those things are going to end. Those things are going to come to a halt because there's not going to be any need of them anymore. So why would you pursue those things with a greater zeal more so than you would pursue faith, hope, and love. That's the argument he's about to make here. Faith, hope, and love. These three abide. And the greatest of these is love. So Paul here is making an argument, trying to get the church at Corinth to understand, hey, the gifts that you're pursuing aren't the most precious gifts. You're so caught up with the prophecy and the tongues and the knowledge and everything else. And Listen, those things are going to come to an end. Those are temporary. Faith, hope, love. And the greatest of those is love. Consider this. There is coming a day where our faith will become sight. Yes, we all believe this. We all, we all have a confidence in that, right? What do we hope for as Christians? We, ho we have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of, of glory that we will be with Him where He is. Well, that hope is going to be fully realized one day, correct? We will be with Him where He is. Amen? So our faith will become sight and what we hope for will become realized. We will possess what we have come to hope for. Now, faith and hope will carry out through eternity as well. Not in the same sense though because our faith will be Sight, our faith and our hope will become realized, but we will enjoy those things. We will enjoy the object of our faith. We will enjoy the realization of our hope for eternity. And there will also be love. Brotherly love will continue throughout eternity. Who are we going to be in glory with? The innumerable, the innumerable multitude. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that no man can number. If we don't, and if we don't love them here, we've got big problems. To look at someone and say, I know Christ died for you, and I will be in glory with you forever, but I will not love you here on this earth. I will not forgive you here on this earth. I will, I will not care for you and have compassion towards you and worship with you. I'm going to worship with you there in heaven, but I'm not going to worship with you here on this earth. No. You see how ridiculous that is? But let me be more, let me be more spiritual. Let me be more biblical with what I just said. You see how sinful that is. I don't want anybody to walk out of here Saying, well, I agree with Caleb. That is pretty ridiculous to act like that. Okay, it is ridiculous. 
But if we're professing Christians, we need to understand something more than it's crazy, it's foolish, it's ridiculous. It's sinful to not love. And we, we as human beings are really good at rationalizing certain behaviors and justifying certain behaviors. So I'm going to repeat this one more time as well. It is sinful not to love. And love must be biblically defined. Christians are sometimes really good at looking you in the face and saying, well, I love you, brother, and I'd do anything for you. And you know full well that they're harboring resentment. They're harboring unforgiveness. They're harboring feelings of ill will. But they'll look you in the face and say, well, I love you. I love you. That's a very human thing to do, right? When you're upset with somebody, when you're when you are holding something against somebody, but you just don't feel like dealing with it, when you see them in public, how do you typically respond to them? Well, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Hey, if you ever need anything, give me a holler. You don't mean a word of it. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, I hope they never call me. I hope I never even have to see them again. Oh, but I love you. No, you don't. And it's sin. It is sin. We must, we must see it for what it is. Guys, look around Baxley. Just look. You don't, listen, I, we're in the South, so a lot of times, you know, people are, well, out there in California, they got, it's really bad out there in California. All of those, uh-uh. Don't do that. When we say amen, and you walk out those doors, I want you to think about Baxley. Can any of you, Let's just do this. Can any of you right now look at me and with a straight face tell me, Caleb, I just wholeheartedly disagree with what you're saying. I think the church in Baxley is really, really united. And I think that I think that I think that all the Christians in, in Baxley really do get along. Exactly. Listen, this isn't something that's out there. This is something that is here in our midst. And if we claim that we're Christians also living in Baxley and we see the problems, are we crying out to God on behalf of Baxley? Are we crying out to God and saying, God, God, help us. God, be merciful to us. God, forgive us for our disobedience. God, forgive us for not loving others as you have loved. God, forgive us for holding grudges and not forgiving. God, forgive us for, for, for holding stuff over people's head and for being bitter and angry at people and just refusing to, to worship and to be around others who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, forgive us. God, heal Baxley. God, bring a true revival in Baxley where the believers truly are united and we come back to the true faith. I don't preach sermons like this so that we can all say, yeah, you made some good points. I agree with what you're saying. And then we go back out, we get in our car, we go home and we keep living life the same way we've been living it. Shame on us. I've been guilty of it. I'm sure every Christian at some point in their life, they have heard a sermon. They have heard a teaching that in their head they thought, we need to change. I need to change. And then we go back out in the world and we don't change. Shame on us. I have not always been able to say this. I've only been in Baxley 
seven, seven and a half years. I have not always been able to say that I genuinely have a heart for Baxley. But I have, I have grown to love that God has placed me here and placed my family here. And I look out at the landscape of Christianity and Baxley and it breaks my heart. There is so much division. There is so much confusion. Christians don't even know what to believe. Well, do I believe, do I believe it this way or do I believe it that way? Listen, there's only one way to understand and believe the scriptures. It's not a private interpretation. And as long as Christians stay confused about what the scriptures actually teach, there's no way we're going to be unified. My hope and my prayer, first and foremost, is that each and every one of us individually would say, God, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way within me and that we would repent of our personal sins. And we would ask God for forgiveness. But I also hope and pray that through a sermon like this, that maybe just maybe God will grant you a burden as well. To pray for Baxley. To pray for the saints that are in Baxley. That we would truly know the truth and that, that we would actually know true Christian unity and what it looks like. That we would know true Christian love and how to share it one with another. And that there would be a peace and a unity of the brethren that truly glorifies God. If we give away all of our stuff, if we give to the poor, if we give our bodies up to be burned, if we have all of the exciting gifts and people think, oh, what a mighty person of faith, they could move mountains and they could do this and do that. If we do not have love for one another, we are nothing and we gain nothing. It's all a sham. It's phony. May God help us. May His will be done. And may He be glorified. Let's close in order of prayer.